Okay, so after this service, we will be going over to the Grace Impact Center, which is right over here, with uh, joining people from the first service who are coming back and doing a little uh, brainstorming on how we can most effectively use that building. Um, and you think you may be thinking, well, you know, I, I only have one idea. I don't have many ideas. But you know, as you're sitting and we're talking together around tables, we'll be having lunch. So we have lunch there. We have childcare there. But as we're sitting and talking with each other, what happens is one person's thought spurs on another person's thought. And it's kind of a catalyst for something else. And all of a sudden, you're in the middle of a conversation you didn't know you'd be having um, because the Holy Spirit is kind of prompting you and speaking through you with some of the gifts and abilities that you have based upon what someone else has said, and you never even thought that was possible. So I really want to encourage you to stay after the second service. We'll go over across the street. We'll go around uh, in, in smaller groups. We'll kind of brainstorm a little bit. We won't take up that much of your time. We'll try to be done. We're maybe 1230. We'll start eating. And then around one-ish or a little before, we'll get into our groups and start discussing and, and kind of brainstorming. You know, God's been really doing some amazing things here at our church. Um, it's, it's truly been a blessing over the past, really, six months or so or a year to, to see how God is, is, is working uh, amongst the people of this church to, to really impact people's lives. And so I, I see this as just another step in that direction. Um, God is going to use this facility in a powerful way. As we reach out to our community, we're trying to come up with different seminars that we can do to, to reach out to our community, people that, you know, are struggling with their kids. And how can we how can we do seminars that help people in raising their kids or their teenagers? How can we uh, do seminars that help with money management? How can we do seminars that talk about purity with the younger ones before they get into their teen years? And those are some of the things that we're working on. And just the the, the opportunity that we're going to have to use this facility, not only for a, a sport, sporting activity, activities, but also for just reaching out um, and creating ways that we can show the love of Jesus Christ to our community. It's going to be incredible. So make sure you come with your your kind of open hearts and minds. We talk about, you know, awakening imagination. That's what we want to do this morning. We want to go over there and just take some time and awaken imagination, get all these ideas together, sit down with some leaders and say, okay, what what are some things that we can implement right now to continue to drive forward the vision that God has for Grace Chapel. And I know that's going to happen. All right. Um, Last week, we started a series, again, Conversations with a Happy Heathen. Before I begin, uh, I'm going to lose some people if I don't at least explain what's going on. I went to church for the first time when I was 17 years old, was invited by a friend who had grew up in an apartment complex with me. She, she had left the apartment complex. She came back. She had started going to church. She was excited about going to church, so she invited uh, me and one other friend to go with her. I thought she was in a cult because she was way too happy about going to church. So I thought I'd go to this church, find out what was going on, and pull my friend out of this craziness. Uh, she's way too happy uh, about being going to church and everything. I thought, you know, I've been to church once in a while when I was growing up, and it was kind of boring. So I thought, how can anybody be this excited about going to church? Something's got to be wrong. So she invited me to this meeting. Um, I won't get into all the details, but I, uh, when I went to the meeting, good folks, good, good students were there. I felt, I felt comfortable. I didn't feel threatened in any way by the people that were around, and that was a, a nice feeling because usually it was some kind of confrontation whenever you went into a new group of students. That didn't happen. 
But then they broke out some Play-Doh. The youth pastor broke out Play-Doh. We wanted us to play with Play-Doh and make things for someone that reminded us of something we had done in the past. Well, I was 17 years old and more on the hood side, and I wasn't going to play with Play-Doh, nor was my friend. And with him there, it even made it more solidified in my mind that I wasn't touching the Play-Doh. But we got stuck at the meeting. We had to do something. We didn't want to just embarrass ourselves by saying, pardon me, pardon me, excuse me, and getting out of the house that we were in. So we went along. I made him a bat and ball. He made me a football or vice versa, whatever it was. I don't remember. And uh, we just stuck it in our pockets and we figured, what's our exit strategy out of this place? While we were sitting there figuring out how to get out of there, uh, a young lady named Anne Marie, who was about 16 or 17 years old at the time, came over with a uh, cardboard box, you know, side of a cardboard box with 30 or 40 smile faces like this on there. And she said, we're all glad you're here. And, you know, on the external, I was just like, yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. Internally, it it really made a difference in my life. Uh, I that was when I was 17 years old. I'm 48 years old. I still have three of those smile faces, um, Play-Doh smile faces, one in my office and two at home that I keep. I have them. I I probably have the oldest Play-Doh known to man. Okay, I still have the Play-Doh. They don't look like smile faces anymore, but I know what they are. And uh, and I still have those. It's one of the reasons I'm here to this morning. Uh, It's one of the reasons I I, I ended up coming back to that youth group the second time because of that gesture, because of her handing over those smile faces and saying, we're all glad you're here. It got me to come back to youth group the second time, which then I got engaged in church, started asking a lot of questions, came to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And now I stand up here on the pastor of Grace Chapel and all the other things that happened in in my life. Thank you for that. Um, uh, (laughs) So, so now that is a backdrop. Um, fast forward 30 years and I'm sitting at home about three two or three years ago and, um, about two and a half years ago. And I get a, I'm on Facebook and I get a, a friend request from someone it's Anne Marie. And I, you know, I thought, Anne Marie, I know that name from the past. And all of a sudden I saw her face. And even though we're a little, just a little bit older and a little bit different, I recognized her and said, that's the person who gave me the smile faces, which was so exciting to me to be reconnected with an old friend and start connecting with some of those youth group kids again on Facebook. And uh, I started talking to her and I said to her, I want you to look up grace-dabble.com, self-sustaining enterprises and back-to-back ministries. And I want you to know that because of the fact that you, you know, gave me those smile faces. You had a part in everything that God has been doing in my life for the past, you know, 30 some odd years. She said, that's so exciting, blah, blah, blah. But our lives have taken two different paths. I'm excited for you. I'm excited for myself. I I basically walked away. She said it was all social for me. It was a fun time in high school. But the reality is I never truly believed it. And in in college and after, I pretty much walked away. She's, uh, I don't think she'd call herself an atheist, but uh, I mean, from a standpoint of just from our own discussions here this morning, she, she does not believe in God at all, does not believe in Jesus Christ, has no religion in her life whatsoever. And so we have started on a journey um, for the past two and a half years. I think at this point we have about 700 posts back and forth. I have two notebooks about this thick filled with discussions back and forth, um, apologetics, defending the faith or just discussions. We don't we argue, but they're 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 they're. Um, they're good arguments. They're, we, lo- we both, we care about each other. Our family, my wife knows her. Our kids interact with her on Facebook. So there's a good, healthy relationship there. Um, 
So it's not like we're arguing as enemies on our points of view. It's just really sharing back and point, back and forth our points of view. Me trying to lead her, uh, from my perspective, closer into a relationship with Christ. And her basically saying to me, I'm a happy heathen. That's where the title came from. She actually said to me, maybe you can use this in a sermon series someday, Conversations with a Happy Heathen. That's where it started out a couple of years ago in our sermon series. And, and for the next, hopefully, for the next, until, until, I win the debate. I'm just kidding. <laughs> until, until she gives her life to Christ, and even after that, we can still talk. But we're going to be having these discussions um, for, for years and years to come. And, uh, and so we're going to be having this sermon series going on for years and years to come. I found it, it's been so, such a great way, to be honest with you, to present the biblical arguments for Jesus Christ and the existence of God in a creative way that doesn't really put people to sleep. I think apologetics never puts people to sleep. But I think this way has been an exciting way for us to really open up our hearts and minds and to see how we can share the love of Jesus Christ through the evidence that God has given us about his existence. So we started the series over again, again, last week. And I said last week in one of my responses to Anne, I said this, I looked at the evidence when I started going to church and came to belief in Jesus Christ. Evidence for Christ? Meaning what? That he existed or something else? I doubt we're using evidence in the same way, but bring it on. All right, I'm going to bring it on, but I, I have to, I bait and switched you last week. I said we're going to go back and forth, back and forth, but Anne went to Florida on vacation last week, so... Basically, it's that's her chance. That was her opportunity. That's her argument right there. Bring it on. And I'm going to bring it on this morning. Okay, she's back. We started connecting again last night. So we'll see what happens next week. But this morning is basically she's asking this question. Evidence for Christ, meaning what? That he exists or something else? I doubt we're using evidence in the same way, but bring it on. And what she's saying, bring on the evidence for who Jesus Christ, who, who he is, who he claimed to be. So I'm going to I'm going to begin. I'm really this is a post that I gave to her that I'm now going to share with you. And I think the best way to start looking at evidence for Christ is first to define the word evidence, because that's important to her that we're on the same page. When I say evidence, what am I talking about? I think we can both agree on these definitions. So here are the definitions that I'm using when we come when it comes to the word evidence, a thing or things helpful in forming a conclusion or judgment. For example, the broken window was evidence that a burglary had taken place. Something indicative, an outward sign, evidence of grief on a mourner's face. The documentary or oral statements and the material objects admissible as testimony in the court of law. To support by testimony, attest, ground for belief or disbelief, data on which to base proof or the establishment of truth or falsehood. So the question we're going to answer this morning is, how do we know that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be? How do we, how do we know that? And I don't think that you would argue that Jesus lives, so I won't spend any time defending that. In Acts chapter 2, and verse 36, Peter builds a case for the cause of Christ. He builds a case. He wrote this. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Peter says there are three pieces of evidence, three pieces of evidence in the case for Christ. Evidence that confirms beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be. Because what will happen is when you talk to your friends, they'll say you believe in Jesus by faith. Somehow like that, that's, that's almost like with disdain. You believe in what you believe by faith, and there's no evidence to back it up. 
What I'm going to present to you this morning is evidence for who Jesus Christ is, who he claimed to be, and proof that backs up that claim. Now, I said to her, Anne, what I'm presenting to you today, what I'm presenting to you all today is just a fraction of the information we have. Some of you have arguments in your mind already and you're hoping I'll throw those out. I may not even get to those. That's how much information and argument, the, the good evidence that we have for who Jesus is, who he claimed to be. So this is just a fraction of the information we have. The first evidence I would like to present are the miracles of Jesus. The miracles of Jesus. Now, before I begin, I'd like, I think it's important to answer a question. Would the disciples die for what they knew to be a lie? And I would die for Christ because of my faith in Christ. Now, I have a, I have a powerful faith in Jesus Christ. So if someone put a gun to my head and wanted me to die for my faith, I would martyr myself for Jesus Christ because I have that much faith in Jesus Christ. So I said, you can, you know, and you can call me a, 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 um, a fanatic if you like. But the disciples, on the other hand, would have to have died for what they knew to be untrue because they were there. It's not it's not the Bible that I've been given that I have the evidence. And I I believe by faith the Bible is true. I was not there, but I believe by faith the Bible is true. They would have to have died for something they knew to be a lie. Now, one crazy man may do that, but but all of them choosing to commit suicide for a lie. It makes no rational, reasonable or logical sense. You have to think that through. Why would these men why would these people die for a lie? In Acts chapter 2, 22, Peter says this. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was born, was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Before I go on, let me go back to our definition of evidence because this is important. To support by testimony. Okay? A test. The documentary or oral statements and the material objects admissible as testimony in the court of law. The Gospels together record more than three dozen miracles that Jesus performed while he was here on earth. So the Gospels lay out three dozen miracles that Jesus performed. Now, he didn't he didn't perform these miracles in secret. Jesus performed these miracles right out in the open. It was common knowledge that Jesus Christ performed miracles in his day. Everyone around him knew that Jesus Christ was one who performed miracles. The religious leaders of his day accused him of performing those miracles uh, on behalf of Beelzebub, which is basic by the power of Beelzebub, which is basically saying you're doing it by the power of evil. But they did not argue with the fact that he was doing miracles. So even the religious leaders of the day weren't arguing the fact that Jesus was, was, was doing miracles. They were just saying, by what power are you doing these miracles? Now, I said to her, I know what you're thinking. These examples all come from the Bible. Okay, let me give you evidence that comes from outside the Bible. There's a Jewish book called the Talmud. Okay, the Talmud is, uh, is basically uh, made up of history and law. And in this book... It claims that Jesus was a sorcerer, okay, that Jesus was a sorcerer and he performed miracles through the dark arts. Now, to Anne, my my response, Anne, here's the point. The fact that they record these validates that Jesus really performed the miracles, okay? 
the Talmud backs up the biblical testimony. Now, you would say, well, it doesn't say he committed him by the act of God, that God was the power behind it. No, I didn't. That's not my issue. My issue is, is there an argument that Jesus performed miracles? There's the argument. It's not only biblical evidence, but outside, and that's just one of the evidences, the Talmud, there's other historical evidence that Jesus existed and he did these miracles, all these kinds of things. But you, you have the evidence outside of the Bible, okay, that Jesus performed miracles. The only question you have to come to is, how did he perform miracles? Through dark arts, which, you know, obviously if you're an enemy and you don't want Jesus to be who he said he was, you're going to say, well, yeah, yeah, he did those. We can't argue that he did these miracles, healed the blind, raised people from the dead, control all these things. But what we're saying is he does it through the power of Beelzebub or whatever else. During the, during the days after Jesus' death and, death and resurrection, there must have been a lot of talk a lot of talk about him, his life, his crucifixion, uh, the empty tomb where he was placed. There must have been a lot of speculation. Speculation must have been running rampant during this, during this time because people knew who he was. People knew what, that he was performing these miracles. According to our sources, people were well acquainted with Jesus and well acquainted with the miracles. Jesus healed the sick. He controlled the elements. He even raised people from the dead. All, all of them were documented, not just by one, but by, by four biographers. Okay, again, go back to testimony. These weren't just documented by one person who saw them, wrote them down. These were documented by four different biographers. Each person, you say, well, yeah, that's the Bible. And these are people, who, again, each person was so convinced of what they saw and what they recorded that they were willing to die defending their testimony. That has to be clearly laid out again, that each person who documented these biographers were not just people writing about George Washington and whatever else about history. They were each willing to die defending their testimony of what they saw and what they recorded. That's important. The miracles of Jesus are powerful evidence that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be. After first service, I had people coming up to me, giving me other historical references, okay, to where Jesus was referenced in, in secular references, that Jesus' existence, the miracles he performed, all those kinds of things. There are other references. So this is powerful evidence. The miracles of Jesus Christ. Don't let people just blow those off and say, oh, you just believe that by faith. Well, I wasn't there, but you know, I'm reading a really good book on George Washington right now. And I'm, I'm looking at what George Washington said and people wrote about George Washington. And I, I'm pretty much taking that as, as, as pretty solid evidence that George Washington existed and that he did what he said he'd done. He fought this battle and he was able to think this way. There's things that are written specifically about him by people who were there at the time. So don't let people just say, oh, it's all just faith. There is more historical documentation, okay, for, the, for backing up the Bible as an authentic, reliable document than any other document in the history of the world. Go look it up. Do some research. Nothing comes even close Okay, so don't let people just throw things out at you and say everything you believe is by faith and it's not intellectual and all this kind of thing. Now, I said this to Anne. Anne, I know you don't believe in miracles and just for a moment, just, but just for a moment, and I want you to do the same thing, okay? People struggling with miracles, just for a moment, consider that we're alive, okay? And that we're talking about this or any subject here at Grace Chapel in 2011 and February the 20th. 2011, that you and I are breathing in and out, that we're having a conversation about anything, 
if our existence, if our, if, is, is our existence not, tr- not a true miracle? If life is a miracle and we have no true evidence for how it came into existence from your perspective, do we then conclude that we don't exist just because you, know, you have no clear evidence for how life came to be? My friends, we're here. The fact, if you don't believe in a God, you have to believe this is a miracle that we're actually sitting here interacting with one another cognitively that you can understand what I'm saying, that there's language, I'm breathing, I'm moving my fingers. I exist. That's a miracle. Now, from Anne's perspective, she has no understand. She would not have a reason or, or um, a, she would not understand how it came to all about to be and how we came into existence. As a Christian, I would say God is the first cause and God created us. But the reality is we're here. Here's the amazing thing for me. Why is it so easy for some of your friends to believe miracles that happened over millions of years, but that Jesus couldn't heal a blind man? Do you ever look at the mathematical possibilities or the scientific evidence for something just, and I'm not talking about something coming from nothing. I'm talking about the earth was forming and all of a sudden life, electricity struck a big pile of muck and life appeared. You ever actually look at the evidence behind that and look at the mathematical probability that that could have happened? It is, it's, it's impossible, okay, from a, from a mathematical possibility. Or if you look at it, any other way you'd like to. We're here, so we know we exist. And if you don't believe in God, then something had to have happened. But if you look at the, if you look at the evidence, okay, that's impossible. So why is it that people will intellectually be fine with something, a miracle that happened, the impossible happened over millions of years from their perspective, but Jesus couldn't heal a blind man? Is that really so unbelievable that we had faith that Jesus Christ could heal someone? When you believe that miracle after miracle, look at the human eye. Go study the human eye and tell me how the human eye evolved. Okay, then I'll show you a real. I'll show you a real miracle. You think healing a blind man's a miracle? See, see how uh, how random circumstances and random chance can bring together the complexity of the human eye. I'll show you a real a real miracle. The second area of evidence that I would like to present are the prophecies concerning Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter says that this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. There are over a hundred prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah. Okay? who the Messiah would be, how he would live, where he was born. Over a hundred specific, clearly documented prophecies on, on concerning the Messiah recorded centuries before Jesus Christ was even born. Descended of David, okay, that he was born of a virgin. There's scripture, I have all the scriptures back as up, Isaiah 7, 14. Born of Bethlehem, Micah. Uh, he was betrayed by a friend. He was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He would be crucified he would be crucified with sinners, but then buried in a rich man's tomb. Okay, all that's laid out. That's Isaiah 53, 9. And I said, Anne, this next prophecy was one of the major pieces of evidence that led me to Christ back in 1980. Okay, before I go on to this, my piece of evidence, I got to tell you a little quick story about my son, Joshua. I'm kind of sharing some of this stuff with him. You know, he's only, you know, he's really young, six years old. So I'm sharing the best I can. And he's sorry. So he, his mind jumps and he says, Dad. So what year did you and mom get married? Because we're now we're collecting coins. So he's into what year certain things are. So I said, you know, 1980, I came to Christ. And he said, well, what year did you get married? Because he's thinking about coins. And I said, well, 1984. And he goes, 
boy, if we had a coin that old, it'd be worth a lot of money. I said, go to bed, Josh. I mean, he calls he calls the 90s the old days. Back in the old days, back in the 90s. I love it. Oh, okay. So listen to this. This this is the one that really this made my hair stand up in the back of my neck. I'm telling you, this really got me. This really pulled me in and started thinking, wow, this, there's a lot of validity behind what, what's going on here. Psalm 22:15 and 16 says this. My mouth is dried up like a pot shred and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. Listen to this. They have pierced my hands and my feet. 500 years before crucifixion was even invented and a thousand years before Jesus Christ was born, a prophecy told how the Messiah would die. They have pierced my hands and my feet. You think, well, that's only one verse. And are you sure that blah, blah, blah? Okay, Isaiah 53 says, now listen to this. I'm not sure. Most of you here are believers. Most of you here know Jesus Christ. You know, understand the gospel. I'm going to share the gospel with you from the Old Testament. All right. Isaiah 53 says this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. My friends, I don't need the New Testament to preach the gospel. All I need is Isaiah 53. That's the gospel. But he was pierced for our transgressions. They have pierced my hands and my feet. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. That is the gospel. I don't know what to tell you. Okay? That's the gospel. Then you look at Zechariah eleven twelve. I was actually looking at this up again. Some of the prophecies. Zechariah talks about the, the Messiah being pierced. Pierced, pierced, pierced. And in one version, it says someone was arguing. It doesn't say pierced. It says that means that Hebrew is gouged. Okay, he was gouged. If you take if you nail someone to a cross, I would use gouged, wouldn't you? More than pierced. Pierced is specific in some. Some people are saying gouged or whatever else. Okay, gouged, pierced, whatever you want. It still makes my hair stand at the back of my neck. I just read it and it happened again. I don't know if it happened for you. It happened for me. Okay. These are, this isn't Nostradamus here, my friends. This isn't a horoscope. I don't read and say, whoa, I'm going to have a good day tomorrow. Maybe not such a good day the day after. Hey, that's true. It wasn't such, not such a good day the day after. Because I kind of fit everything in. And you read it too and it applies to your life. This doesn't apply to your life. This doesn't apply to anyone's life except for Jesus Christ. The coming of the Messiah was so definite and so specific, there couldn't be an imposter. God made it that way. This isn't luck. This isn't just kind of throwing something out that someone can go, gee, I want to spend the rest of my life pretending I'm the Messiah. So I'm going to, what, be born in Bethlehem? And there's two different Bethlehems, too. So you just can't say Bethlehem. Epaphrathah is the one he was born in. So you just can't say Bethlehem. There was two different ones. Okay, no one knows in the womb, hey, mom, go to Bethlehem because I want to be the Messiah. And the right one, make sure you pick the right one. Not one of these predictions, Jesus filled every single one to the last letter. Not one of them about Jesus was wrong. Jesus fulfilled every single detail. Now I said, and just for fun, let's look at the mathematical evidence, okay? The mathematic, I love doing this. Some, some people here just get all jazzed up about this. Other people are like, they turn off for a couple seconds, but stick with me for a second. 
The mathematical, a mathematician calculated the odds that just eight of, of, of just eight of these prophecies about Jesus having been fulfilled by coincidence in the life of one person. So take eight prophecies, pro, uh, prophecies, stick them in the life of one person like Jesus, and the probability by chance that he was born here and blah, 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 appears for our transgressions. Okay. Based on the laws of probability, the odds are 1 in 10 to the power of 17. That's, that you t- that's 1 with 17 zeros behind it, all right? It would take $10,560 at 6 inches long laid end-to-end to extend 1 mile. The moon is about 239,000 miles from Earth. So it would take $2,523,840,000 laid end-to-end to extend from the Earth to the moon. That's just... <laughs> that's just a little over two and a half billion. The number we're talking about here, okay, is astronomical. It's mind-boggling. If you had that many dollar bills, you could lay them end to end and stretch them from the earth to the moon and back 20 times, all right? Now, they're stretched back and forth from the earth to the moon 20 times, dollar bills, to earth to the moon 20 different times. I blindfold you, one of them is a counterfeit, you get one chance to pull the dollar out of that pile. One chance, blindfolded. Counterfeit one, here it is, pull it out. Oh, how lucky was that? I said eight prophecies. I didn't say the over 100. I only picked eight, okay? Do the probability with over 100, and it becomes just ridiculous. My point is that the, it's mathematically impossible for that to happen by random chance that Jesus was just lucky enough to be crucified. And he just, I, guess, I guess it's amazing, too, that crucifixion at that point where the prophecy was laid out wasn't even invented, it wasn't, it's like me saying uh, someone 500 years now is going to die by this way of execution, but we have no technology or there's no invention of that execution whatsoever. I just kind of pick it out and that's how it's going to happen. This brings me to my final piece of evidence, the resurrection of Jesus. And these are all ones that people say, oh, see, that's all faith. It's all based on faith. Okay. It is at the end based on faith, a step of faith. I'm going to keep saying that. It is a step of faith. It isn't a blind leap into the darkness, okay? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 2, verse 24, Peter said, But God raised him from dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Peter repeats this emphatically in verse 32. He says, God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. He knows what he's saying here. No one, he's, he's saying, we're all witnesses. If you don't believe me, Go ask the other guy. Go ask someone else who was there. But I'm telling you, this happened. To stick with our definition of evidence, the documentary or oral statement and the material objects admissible as testimony in a court of law to support by testimony to attest. Okay. now in first Corinthians, chapter 15, verse six, Paul says this. After that, talking about the resurrection of Jesus, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. If the guy was trying to make something up, he'd say, you know, there is a lot of people who saw this. Most of them are dead now, so you really can't go ask them. There's a few over here and a few other. I can't remember their names. 500 at the same time saw Jesus, okay, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he's saying they're most of whom are still alive. In other words, if you have any question of my integrity, of my testimony, go ask one of the 500 people who are still, still, who are still alive. Okay? Now, I said to her, if you allow me to speculate, 
based upon the fact that Jesus is referred to in the Talmud, that's that book of law and history, okay, the Jewish law and history, based on a reference from the Talmud that the Talmud calls Jesus that man, okay? It's a derogatory term. It's a belittling term, but they use the term, okay? Jesus is alive. Jesus is who he said he was. So they say that man, which means the one who is known to all. That's the definition of that man, the one who is known to all. I would think that in the time between Passover and Pentecost, many of the Jews would go to the empty tomb of Joseph of Arimathea to check it out, okay? This has just happened. And the Talmud saying that man, the one who is known to all. So this just happens. You have, you have the Passover, and you know what I mean, that's going on. And so you would think between that time, between the Passover and Pentecost, many of the Jews would go and check out Joseph of Arimathea's grave. Just to check it out. The question, if they went to check it out, which would be totally logical and reasonable, based upon the fact that everyone knows what just happened with Jesus Christ, the question would come up, where's the body? Where is the body? And this question must be answered by those who do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To destroy Christianity, it's very simple, my friends. We would not be sitting here today except for one thing. To destroy Christianity, all the religious leaders of the day had to do was what? Anybody? Produce the body. Produce the body. Jesus raised the dead. Oh, ho, ho, ho. no, he is right here. He's dead. There he is. Crucified. He's dead. Shut up. Done. It's over. Here's the body. The person you said raised from the dead is not there. He's dead. He's gone. All you need to do is produce the body. They couldn't do it. It was common knowledge that they had to do everything that they possibly could, take every precaution that had to be taken to make sure the body of Jesus Christ was not stolen. Okay? It was also common knowledge the next day when they got up, the body was gone. The tomb was empty. So the question remains, where is the body? What happened to the body? His friends could not have taken the body. His relatives and everything could not have taken the body because it was guarded by Roman guards. If the Roman guards allowed anyone to take that body, guess what happened to them? Okay, they're not letting anyone take that body. It wasn't the Jews or the Romans are taking the body because that would basically be the opposite result of what they wanted. But regardless, the body's gone. Okay, the body's gone. People say, oh, they snuck in. They snuck in what? Rolled a stone, a tons and tons, that weighed tons and tons, rolled it up out of the way. Boom. And no one noticed. The guards were sleeping. Same thing they always use. Maybe they were eating happy mushrooms again. They all had delusions or something like that. I don't know. That's, that's actually an argument that you read a lot. That people who saw Jesus all went to a field or something like that, ate the same mushrooms, and they were all like, ooh, hoo, hoo, like the 60s. You know what I'm saying? It's like, oh, I think I saw Jesus too. Love you. Um, <laughs> sorry for all you born in the 60s and everything. I was born in 62, but I didn't get, you know, I wasn't eating mushrooms at that point. Okay, in addition to the original 12, we have Paul, okay? You got you to you deal with Paul, okay? In, in, in addition to the original 12, you have Paul, who spent his life persecuting Christians. That's what he did. That's what he did for a living, persecute Christians, now claiming that he had an experience with the risen Jesus Christ. Here's this Paul. Paul goes on to write this in 1 Corinthians 15, 30 through 32. Okay, he says this. And as for us... Why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, not uh, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained if the dead are not raised? Why would I put myself through all of this? 
I mean, shipwrecks and floggings and beatings and stonings and you name it. The guy was ripped to pieces. Why would I do that if the dead are not raised? And again, you need to answer the question. Why would Paul, a man who spent his life trying to destroy Christianity, now be a follower and become a follower of Jesus Christ? Why would he do that? What happened? What happened? You could say, well, it happened so long ago, anything could happen. That's so ridiculous. Then you know what? Don't ever read history. If that's the argument you have in your mind right now, put away all history because you weren't there. And you have no idea who's writing about whatever. This is just reality, okay? There's historical documents that come within a year, two, three of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, where Paul is, 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 is stating these things. Paul is stating these things within years of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is historically accurate documents. If you, don't, if you think he's lying, that's one thing. But the fact that this happened in his life is not false. It is absolutely true. So the question is, what happened to a man who hated Christians so much he held the coat of Stephen while they stoned the guy to death and all of a sudden now he's a follower of Jesus Christ? He, gives, he tells you the truth in his testimony and the evidence backs up his testimony. Evidence. A thing or things helpful in forming a conclusion or judgment. The broken window was evidence that a burglary had taken place. If a broken window is evidence that a burglary had taken place, would not a transformed life with a testimony of so many other people also be evidence that, G- that Paul was confronted by the living Christ? Would that not le- at least be logical, rational, and reasonable. I'm not asking you to have faith here. I'm just telling you, look at historical evidence and answer the question. Is not not rational, logical, and reasonable that a man who hated Christians all of a sudden turns around that it is because that he was confronted by the risen Jesus Christ? Would that not fit with another one of our definitions of evidence? Something indicative, an outward sign, evidence of grief on a mourner's face. How about... How about a blind? How about being blinded and falling madly in love with Jesus Christ? I think that would be something that we written on your face, wouldn't it? That your fact that you're blind and you're blind and you're in love with Jesus Christ, you have a passion for Jesus Christ. I mean, use your logical, rational mind here. What happened to Paul? He had a change of heart. You know, he's walking down the road to Emmaus, and he just thought, "It is so mean of me." To pick on these poor Christians. I'm going to become one. I'm going to become one. So someone like me can stone me, shipwreck me, you know, fight with wild animals. I mean, you name it. Beat me, go through, imprison me for years at a time. I mean, it's, it's worth it because I'm just a meanie and I'm going to change my... You know how easy it is for people to change their ways, right, at his age? So that's, that makes much more sense that he just, he had a change of heart. Peter said, we are all witnesses. Deuteronomy 17, 6 said that the facts of the case must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. The case for Jesus Christ was established not only on the testimony of two or three witnesses, but by, by, by 12 disciples and also at least a half a dozen other women. Okay? Not including the 500 I mentioned to you already. The people had seen him uh, besides, the, the, I'm just using those right now. And on top of that, let me throw something else out to you. Okay, why on earth would the Bible say that the women saw Jesus first if women's testimonies really weren't counted that much in this culture? Well, what sense would it make, okay, if the Bible was lying, if you're writing the Bible and you're just trying to make this up, 
why on earth, in, on, on God's green, wonderful earth, why would you say that women saw the risen Christ first? That would not help your argument back in this day, in this culture. It would hurt it. The only reason they said that women saw him first in this culture was because it was true. That's the only reason. There's no other reason to say that women saw him first. If it doesn't help your argument, if you're lying, you know what? There's something about lying. When you're lying, you have to make things up and make it squirt around. You can tell when people are lying a lot of the time. They They have to make things all work out. When you're telling the truth, sometimes you get yourself in trouble if you tell the truth. Because it's just the truth, you know. They told the truth. That's why the women saw him first, because it's true. It's accurate and it's true. It's absolutely true. These, listen, these people had absolutely nothing to gain and everything to lose, and they did, by being followers of Jesus Christ. Someone, someone please explain to me what these people had to gain at this time, by being followers of Jesus Christ. They believe with all their hearts, and most of them died for what they believed. Okay? They believed it with all their hearts, and most of them died for their belief. So my question to you is this morning, how else do you explain that? How do you explain it? I could see you saying, I want to go. I, I've heard people in seminary, whatever, I'll say, someone say, why are you going to seminary? Oh, I heard it's a good gig. You know, you can get into church and, you know, money-wise you can do this and that and you're able to be in a position, blah, blah, blah. You, you can get people today who, don't, who weren't there just basically having reasons why they could become religious or whatever. I understand that. But these folks were there. So, I, my, again, my question is, why, why, why would they do that? And, and the answer for a lot of people is they're fanatics. They're fanatic. You see, people, people do that today. That's one of the answers I got right back from someone. Yeah, people still do the thing. They blow themselves up. That's ridiculous. It's not that they were fanatics. It can't be they were fanatics. They were there. They were there. They believed. Understand. Get, 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 stick with me on this one. They believed because they saw him. Jesus said in John chapter 20, verse 29. Remember when he, when he confronted Thomas? Okay, when he confronted Tommy, he said, he said, you believe because you see. Okay, you believe because you see, because you have seen, you believe. Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. Thomas saw. You can't say the guy was a fanatic that someone told him. He ate a bunch of mushrooms, started running around saying, Jesus is risen. Jesus is risen. When the mushrooms wear off and someone wants to crucify you upside down or cut you in half or bury you up to your head and stone you to death, you change your story. That's all there is to it. A bunch of people are not going to die. I could pick 12 of you randomly here. Not one of us would die for something that we absolutely knew was a bold-faced lie. Not one of us would die, most unless, unless there's one nutty person in the congregation, okay? The other 11 of us would go, never knew you were that much of a fruitcake or something. Okay? But 12 out of 12 would say, they, they put on a good show, but when push came to shove and someone was going to take your life, it'd be like, uh, let me rethink my position. No one was rethinking anything. You look at the historical evidence and the people, even the people after the disciples who were put to death and martyred, because of the first-hand or second-hand stories that they had heard of resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter presented the evidence. He made his case, and he concludes with this quote from David. In this last powerful closing statement in Acts chapter 2, verses 26 to 32, listen to this. 
Therefore, this is David. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also with, with, uh, will rest in hope because, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. Hear that? That's David. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Peter, now, fellow Israelites, I can tell you with confidence that the patriarch David died and was buried in his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised to him on oath that he would, be pla- that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all, we are all, all witnesses of it. Now, I will not argue with one person in this room that I accepted Jesus Christ by faith. Okay? I took a step of faith, looking at the evidence for who Jesus Christ claimed to be. I took a step of faith and asked Christ to come into my life. No question. All of life is faith. Okay? When someone wants to argue faith with you, go back to last week. How can nothing create everything? It takes more faith to believe that nothing created everything than that God is the first cause of all things. The, the, the historical evidence for Jesus Christ and who he says he was is strong, it's accurate, and it's evidence. It's strong evidence. So for you, when you go out into the world and you share your faith, don't go out into the world kind of like squeamish with all you have is to say, I just believe that. Study the evidence, get a better understanding of why you believe what you believe, and then with, with gentleness, the Bible says, present those things to those who do not believe. This world is looking for truth. They're looking for truth. We have the truth. God says, come, let us reason together. God is not afraid of getting into discussions and debates with anyone. We should not either. Because all truth leads to God. All truth leads to God. So even if you don't have all the answers, engage in the conversations. And when people ask you questions you can't answer, don't get nervous. Don't get flustered. Say, that is such a good question. That's going to help me. I'm going to go back and find the answer, and I'll get back to you on that. But engage in the conversation, my friends, because your, your foundation is not built on some blind leap of faith. Your foundation is built on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, on who God said he was, and it's built on evidence. Okay, that can stand up. It can stand up in any forum at any time in history. That's what we have. Let's bow our heads. Father God, thank you so much for this time that we can spend together. And Father, I, I want to stop this morning just for a second. And if there's anyone here this morning, after hearing that, you heard the gospel, that Jesus Christ came to earth and died on a cross. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sins. We are separated from God because of sin. Jesus Christ came to earth to bring us back into a relationship with God. And Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. He took all of your sin on the cross. And by his wounds, by the piercing of his wounds, you can be healed. Does anyone here this morning that believes that? that believes that evidence, that, tr- that, that truly ca- came to an understanding this morning that, you know what, this isn't a blind leap of faith. This is truth. This is truth. 
that I want you this morning just to just very quickly to put your hand up. Just put it up and put it back down. Amen. 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 Phenomenal. That's awesome. That's awesome. Father God, if there's anyone here even this morning who still has questions that wants to talk, I pray, dear God, that you would encourage them to just connect with me this week. Don't let it go, Lord God. Allow them to just be pulled by your Holy Spirit into a conversation that will help them grow in their relationship with you. Father, we love you. We trust you. We give our lives for you. We pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Are we going to run? Okay, do we need to run through it again? Okay. Um, 